0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
1: welcome to the New Books Network. This is Boris Karpa with New Books in History, and we have with us today Ken Monshine, who is a man of many talents, because he is, not only is he a PhD in medieval history, but he's also, he's also a fencing master, and he's also got a master's degree in education. He's written, uh, I think, uh, something like half a dozen books and all sorts of different subjects. And today we're going to talk about one which is uh, fascinating to me. I think it's going to be fascinating to our audience. It is On Time, A History of Western Timekeeping. Happy to have you with us today, Ken. Thank you. Happy to be here. And, you know, we have this show, uh, you know, uh, you're a medievalist, you're familiar with societies which orient themselves around tradition, and our show is also very much about tradition. We have traditional questions which we ask everybody, and one of them is you know, we always ask why did you choose this particular topic for your book, especially as you know most of your other books are not about clocks.
0: Um, Strangely enough, or not really strangely enough, it came from my interest in fencing because everything in fencing happens in space and time and over the centuries people have had a a whole variety of vocabulary in which to describe how actions take place in space and time and you can imagine that representing something as dynamic as a sword fight on the two-dimensional static medium of a piece of paper or a piece of parchment is gonna be a difficult thing to do. So the ways in which they use this is always gonna be somewhat metaphorical and it fit in with their intellectual idiom of whatever time they were living in. But what always remained constant that, and this fascinated me when I found it out, is that it always remained rooted in Aristotelianism and sort of the relativity of, how should I put it, the, the relativity of different actions, because time is measured inherently, even fundamentally in our modern world, by movement. Um, and Aristotle said that without movement, we really don't have a sense of time. Or, and, and this, is this movement, of course, it can be mental movement. So think of anesthesia, if you've ever gone under anesthesia. One minute they're putting the mask over your face, the next you're in the recovery room. The time in between is lost. And you could have woken up centuries later, and you'd have no sense of time passing. We fundamentally measure time through sense experiences. And the more I looked into this, the more fascinating it was, because it readily occurred to me that the history of timekeeping was going away from measuring things by natural movements, such as the movement of the sun through the sky, or I should say the apparent movements of the sun through the sky, or um, in pre-industrial society, perhaps the most constant movement or most constant apparent movement was that of the stars in the sky, which is from which we get really our 24-hour day. And what Struck. What struck me was that the way in which people, much as as with fencing, the way people thought and wrote about time and measures of time, and the the reality of this abstract thing we call the passing of time, which is, after all, simply something we tell from a mechanical device, be it your cell phone. We had a clock on the wall, right? These are we think of these as the very essence of time, and we never really question them. But these are really just abstract devices that we made to somewhat mirror natural processes. Even in the modern sense, taking time from, say, the speed of light or um, the 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 frequency of um, radioactive um, states of certain elements, right, using an atomic clock, even that is applying a abstract of a sense, right, a human measure on onto something that is really just artificial. As St. Augustine said, uh, if somebody asked me what time is, I don't know, right? I think I know it. But then when you think about what is time and how do we measure time, the more we think about that, then the less we really know. And so the social history of that and the change in philosophy and the change in thought, not just in Western culture, but also the difference between Western culture and other cultures for the various measurements of time, be they very short in the order of seconds, minutes, even hours, or very long, months, what is a month? How long is a year? When do we have Ramadan? When do we have Yom Kippur? When do we have uh, Easter? Right? These questions, the more you look at them, the more fascinating they are.
1: Well, you know, we have an audience which in some ways I think we have. And our audience is unique because it is a new books network and... I think if you polled our audience in some way, you would find out many people in our audience are not just uh, readers, but they're also working on their own books. And So for the sake of these people who are writing a book, or maybe they're considering writing a book, can you tell us a bit about some of the obstacles which you've overcome in writing this book, and how you've overcome them?
0: Uh, That's a... That's an interesting question. No one's really asked me that before. And actually, of course, like anything else, there's a lot of obstacles. So this was originally based on my uh, doctoral dissertation, which strictly looked at time and timekeeping, really in medieval northern France, really Paris, and really looked at a lot of data from that. And I think that if you look at it, that's sort of represented in the book, in that it's got a lot more, say, granular detail in the medieval chapters. Um, because that's, of course, where my real love lies. And then, of course, you know, I'm really fascinated with the 16th century, too, which is sort of an orphan thing in history. Because that's where history departments tend to divide their errors and no one's really a 16th century person. But uh, to answer your question, I, I went through a lot of rewrites. It really needed a lot. I really need to thank my editors at, at Johns Hopkins University Press uh, who kept sending it back to me I almost gave up on it and was like I am just not going to get this right it was like way too academic and I, I think I really needed to find a voice and the voice in this book is almost conversational um, I hate to say it but in some ways C.S. Lewis's writing board, like you know we're all influenced by certain things when we're very young And weirdly enough, C.S. Lewis, though, like I kind of, and, you know, growing up Jewish, I didn't realize he was really a Christian apologist, but he had this sort of like chummy voice, I want to say. And that kind of like echoes through my head. I I think like the two big influences on my writing were Gary Gygax and the original Dungeons and Dragons books and uh, C.S. Lewis. And they're sort of like polar opposites because the one is very verbose and shall I say, uh, a Victorian almost in his prose. And the other one is the also kind of coming from, you know, more authentically coming from that Victorian, or I should say Edwardian education system. He writes on a, a level that, well, he's writing for kids, right? So he's really writing on a kid's level. And I I kind of have been like between these two early influences or two early um polls. And so, um, not that I didn't read other stuff besides C.S. Lewis as a kid. I'd read a lot of fantasy, Lloyd Alexander, a whole bunch of other stuff. And, But but I guess C.S. Lewis's voice stayed with me more, weirdly enough. And so, I really had to move away from my Gary Gygax voice and into my C.S. Lewis voice. As weird as that may sound, right? And I thought about this in my own head a bit, though, which is why I'm putting it this way. And... That's really what made it so. And of course, it was a, a very long journey um, from the dissertation, right? And I realized I couldn't really publish a thing on the on the on the dissertation itself. and I really wanted to make it like a big case. And I really was not succeeding in making a big case that scholastic philosophy and timekeeping kind of match the timekeeping. Uh, the the timekeeping technology and that the two influence each other, which was um, in many ways I was influenced by Joel Kay's Economy and Society in the 14th Century, which is a very academic book about um, orders of magnitudes and a group of uh, British or say English academics called the the Merton Calculators, and also Dan Smale's um, work using uh, um, notary records from Marseille. Uh, called uh, Imaginary Cartographies about how people thought about space differently in fourteenth century Marseilles uh, in in their urban landscape, and I thought Dan, you know, Dan was my um, advisor in uh, well, not it was my advisor at him, that was Richard Juge, but he was I, I should say one of my mentors, he was on my doctoral committee, and I really wanted to. Um, kind of do with time what he did with space, they think of time differently. And certainly they did. This has been very well tried and ground. But I really want to take that page from Joel Kay about how technology and sort of exigent outside things influenced philosophy. And I think if you read like this abstruse um, scholastic philosophy, then you really do see that. But then I really had to take a lot of that out, or at least I should say condense it quite a bit and make it very readable. For just really anyone who an undergraduate or general interested reader picks up the book um because it 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 gets really abstruse like you can't have like long passages in Latin and translated Latin and stuff and keep people interested in the book and that and like letting go of that, I think trimming the fat off the book was really um you know really like I think the 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 really hard part. Um, finding the publisher less so, because I, I knew Greg Britton, who was the publisher of, um, at Johns Hopkins, I knew him because he had been at the Getty, and, I, and the Getty asked me to do a book on their manuscript of Fiore di Liberia, uh, late 14th, or early 15th century Italian fencing master, and I did that for them, and it turned out very well, and I knew Greg, I had him as a contact, so I contacted him, but, you know, they kept sending me at the manuscript. And so it really required that sort of fat trimming, or I should say maybe less trimming the fat, but more like just sort of like a slow marinade, like my mom's brisket. So the fat turned into something kind of unctuous as opposed to something that was just, would get stuck in your teeth.
1: Well, I'd like to, yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. I'd like to move on uh, just a little bit of, um, fr- uh, from what you said to... Um, And uh, Something you've touched upon in your um, discussion of, of the book and of your dissertation, one big theme in your book is the relationship, of course, between how people approach time and what role it plays in their lives and what means they have Uh, available to them to measure time. And of course, this is one of the, for me, it was one of these ah moments, because, you know, it's something which most people kind of know. We've kind of heard people who are not like you, you know, experts in this stuff. We've heard something about this before, but... um, once you read this, uh, once I've read your book, a lot of the stuff became clear to me. Can you maybe tell um, our audience a little bit about the relationship between the progress in clocks and the advance towards better, more accurate clocks, more precise clocks? How it changed the the approach we have to time as a society?
0: Yeah, so this actually happens along... um a few axes i want to say um first it there's the the issue of precision right how close to the mark can we get And accuracy how consistently can we do that and then there's other axes like the personalization of time um, in the beginning, time was sort of a series of conventional signals. Maybe you might have one person in the community, say a, you know a Christian town or something. Uh, it was the monks keeping their the times for prayer, and this would be conventional, and it would it was really a measure of duration as opposed to actual time the way we think about it, that they would chop up the periods of day and night into equal parts, six equal equal parts each, and they'd bring bells for prayer or whatnot. And this would be a conventional signal for the entire community. So really, we're talking here about social coordination. As technology gets better, and um, well, first, of course, they, they get the capacity to actually make a mechanical clock that's going to be somewhat accurate right they make a tower clock and this can in sort of uh, a more automated way because they did require regular maintenance have this more abstract idea of time um which would ring out for the whole community of course they still really kept this synchronized to these periods of, of day and night that shrank and grew these seasonal hours because um be, that's what people were used to, and of course, before the mechanical clock, they used a variety of means to do this. They would take sightings of the of the zodiac. Um, they would, you know, they they knew about the sphere of stars and twenty four hour equal hours, but this wasn't really as useful to them socially. Um, so they would use the stars as well in the zodiac and the transit of the zodiac for the unequal hours, uh, and they would use water clocks to time the periods, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, they besides this, right? So uh, they would, they um, they were more personal units of time, like okay, I will boil an egg for as long as it takes to say a certain prayer, right? But they used they used things that were readily there, and in their world. So as technology went on, uh, especially springs, clocks were able to be made accurately and precise, smaller and smaller. Um, of course sort of i would say like the the culmination of this would be the invention of the seagoing chronometer uh in the 18th century though of course that was we like to look at that as sort of one person's brilliant idea but really he was dependent on a whole lot of people and a whole lot of people's innovation to put this together um But by the 19th century, pocket watch, you know, a a few things had happened. One is that people had pocket watches, and sort of you're expected to internalize a sense of time, and everyone was supposed to synchronize time and be together. But of course, there still wasn't this sort of coordination between places. It it required high speed transport and railroads to really have things like we know today, like time zones. Um, And then, of course, there is uh with that came industrial clock discipline, this whole idea of instead of working with the, you know, working with the natural rhythms of things, right? I go to the barn and I work my horse. How long? Oops. I go to the barn and I work my horse. And how long does it take to work my horse? Well, it takes as long as it takes, right? You're, you can't, I can't be like, Tell, tell my partner, okay, I'll meet you for dinner at such and such a time if whatever I need to do with my horse takes whatever time it does, right? It, the, the two don't really mesh. Um, the lit, the rhythm of ag- agricultural labor and clock time, it, they don't really mesh, right? You get up earlier to do whatever tasks you need to do around the farm, and you know you're kind of limited by daylight, and that's the way it is, Um, so there's that, and that doesn't really match with factory time. And really our, our, our idea of time, like class begins at certain, a certain time, um, we have dinner reservations at a certain time, whatever that, that is really built off, um, a post-industrial idea, right. And that there's been a lot of cultural conflict between these two ideas of time. So I hope that this goes to answer your question, but it's it's sort of like a, a lifestyle thing. Today, we're always rushed for time. And we see another revolution happening today, right? In that the strict work time is breaking down with work from home. So, all right, am I at work? Am I at home? Is the zone of production going into my domestic sphere? Is it permissible for me to stop working and do a load of laundry. Um, we've got, you know, a lot of these questions are still relevant today.
1: Which, um, you know, some of the stuff which you just mentioned, you talked about about the invention of uh, the chronometer. And I would like to just zoom in on just one specific word, which says the, the maritime chronometer, because, of course... Uh, you know, like yourself, I have a bit of a military background. I've done some work in military history. And, of course, I live in Israel. I served a little bit in the military. And in basic training, we, we this was before modern phones, we all had to bring watches with us. When you enlisted, you, know, you got a notice which said, when you turn up, you need to have a watch. And, you know, the, our instructor was The instructors would say, you need to set our watches so they match ours to the minute. And we had to, do whatever we did, we had to do it within a certain time, which was on these watches. Whether it was 15 minutes, it could be 30. So watches played a big role for, you know, the coordination of the military training, which we did. So I I do know that, uh, we do know that, watches, they have uh, clocks, they have a military aspect for them, and in your book you discuss uh, how uh, the advance in the clocks in the 18th century and the 17th century, it, was, it had to do with the, Royal, the British Royal Navy and how they wanted to have better clocks for ships, for, for navigation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role of the Royal Navy, the British Parliament, and the promoting uh, these, these inventions?
0: Sure. Well, you actually bring, well, I don't really have a military background. Um, I decided that um, early on that uh, I really wouldn't want to be in a foxhole next to myself and decide to spare anyone else the experience. Um, so, but to get back to that, yes, yeah, certainly the military history is really important. And it wasn't just the British who were seeking a seagoing chronometer. It was really everyone, but it was, um, well, John Harris, you know, Harrison's really credited with it, but Again, I want to emphasize the nature of progress it isn't just one heroic figure, but it's really contingent on what people did around them. But of course, um, you know, that without um, skilled watchmakers and other people, Harrison's chronometer wouldn't work. In fact, the design he was pursuing for years never really worked. And really what he eventually got, which was really made for him, was a souped-up pocket watch um, with, you know, really, you know, really, um, you know all sorts of adjustments and things like that, some of, which, some of which innovations he helped to come up with, but, you know, others were done by other, other people, like um, some of the mechanisms were made of uh, precious stones that would um, wear less and other things as well. But to get back to what you're saying, uh, to talk to about what it, the use of it is that, of course, as you know, as you go east or west of time zone changes. So if you take astronomical measurements and you get the apparent local time, and then you compare it with something that has been kept accurate to say your point of departure. You know how far east or west, in terms of degrees of um, of uh, longitude, you have traveled from your point of departure. And this makes accurate navigation possible. Before that, people were always running aground, getting into trouble. All sorts of awful stuff was happening. You know, they were like they're trying to go around, um, fight through the seas. Uh, around the Cape of uh, uh, you know, the, the, the southern end of South America, which is horrible seas, apparently. And they, did we make it? Are we in the Pacific now? How do we know, right? So it was of utter, utter importance in order to precisely know where you were, to be able to intercept enemy ships, uh, to be able to steer, steer clear of navigational hazards. And it made um, seagoing much, 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 Safer. So this was of huge, this was like almost, I want, I, I, it was like radar in terms of its military, in World War II, in terms of its military importance, right? It's something that is not directly used to harm the enemy.
1: Can you tell us a bit about the policy which Parliament pursued about how it promoted these inventions?
0: Oh, oh, how did Parliament pursue yeah well they offered a a prize a big big cash prize for for doing for doing this and the 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 conflict this led to a lot of politics, i should say too and this is a fascinating story because harrison's um Harrison had his um, patrons like Edmund Haley, the famous astronomer, Royal Observer, uh, uh, Royal uh, Royal Astronomer. I'm sorry, and um, his um, adversary, I would say, is a guy. Was a guy named Masculine, who, like many people, I would say, most educated people thought that it a, a method of determining longitude would be. Astronomical, just like determining latitude. This made sense. This is what everything had ha, had, uh, you know, all navigation, all everything like that had been um, done by means of astronomical observation. So a number of methods were hit upon. One would be uh, observing the moons of Jupiter as sort of a natural clock, which of course was only really able to be done from land, hard to observe from a moving ship. And they all tried uh, something called uh, lunar distances, like the apparent distance of the moon from various astronomical landmarks. And this required precise observations and calculations. And they had a method that actually worked, Right, and this was totally in keeping. Right, this is if you were an educated person in the 18th century, you wouldn't have believed that a miraculous clock could have done this. That you would have gone with the tried and true, which was astronomical distances. And there was a lot of politics involved in this as well. And they actually came up with a, a system of this that worked. And it just was nowhere near as easy as using a chronometer, uh, which only really t- it really required just finding the, the the apparent local time which was you know it's easily done using a sextant so they uh, masculine really opposed Harrison's trying trying to keep claim that prize money it was a lot of money it was maybe like Equivalent to millions today. I don't remember the precise amount, but it was really quite a bit of money. Uh, quite quite a bit of money, and more importantly, it was a you know Ariston was an old man by this this point. It was a vindication of his life's life's work, and it required actually the intervention. I think it was King George the Third, who was very into scientific instrumentation, and it required his personal intervention for him to be declared the winner and get the prize money. Um, the, the strange thing is, is that I see Masculine as sort of a sympathetic figure. A lot of people like to play him as sort of the bad guy, but I see Masculine as the, you know, it made sense. And that's kind of how science goes forwards. It's like a bunch of people working and making incremental progress. And even Harrison, we like to hold Harrison up as this figure of, this, this, this genius figure. Well, actually, the, he'd been pursuing for decades, Devices that didn't really work because of the pitch and roll of the ship. They got put off, things like that. Um, It was really something that he required on the expertise of others to put together. And he kind of got more of a, uh, he kind of got the credit for it. But you said something very interesting before about watches when you're in the military and I just wanted to kind of speak to that for a moment. It's very interesting because it wasn't really until like the Crimean War and the well, not even the Crimean War, but the Boer War, that men started wearing wristwatches because men had pocket watches. Women, of course, didn't have pockets, and wristwatches were not very accurate. But then, of course, in the battlefield, it was much more useful to have a wristwatch than a pocket watch. Much more easy, and so one in civilian life it became a masculine dress accessory. But two, they started getting made way more accurate and precise than they had been before because of the the need for military coordination. So that's an interesting thing that you should bring that up. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible
1: and, of course, in that time, because there were no personal radios yet, the only way to meaningfully coordinate an action between two people who were, uh, you know, at a distance from each other was that we will do it at this precise time. The assault will, t- will start at, uh, f- at uh, quarter past twelve precisely. And so you would have to have uh, watches which were uh, more or less, you know, you could set them to the same time.
0: Yeah, exactly, and that's exactly it, right? Or you know, we will we will um, you know come to relieve you at such and such a time or whatever, and you, you need to know when your relief is going to get there. So yeah, and this was you know really important in World War One. So the 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 wristwatch is a very much, very much a military thing, as as is I should say GPS, right? Because GPS was developed by the military to fix fix people in space where are we Right. You know, it was a very expensive thing to launch those satellites and do all of that but it also requires a precise knowledge of time to fix you in space because you need to f- you know, it's it's all based on um signals bouncing off those What's satellites the local and time is yeah
1: yeah and uh, from from what you talked about before about um, you know the, the different people competing for this apartment award i want to move on a little bit to something which i think will be fascinating to our readers is just how much intrigue how much uh, what we would call today how much drama there is surrounding these clock conventions and you talk, uh, in your book, you talk quite a bit uh, about people like Robert Hooke, who, you know, because he's such a um, abrasive person, he has so, so, so many personal conflicts with so different people, including people in Britain. And, of course, uh, Christian Huygens is a Dutch inventor trying to claim credit for the balancing spring mechanism, and only recently was it discovered that, in fact, probably Hook did invent the balancing spring first. So, can you just for for our listeners, can you give them a taste of the kind of you know intrigue and drama that we can see in your books, the sort of you know the clock drama?
0: Yeah, well, I wanted to give a sense, you know, not just talk, make this about. Um... Devices, but about people, because of course we're we're, we're drawn to narratives and drawn to human drama, and certainly in the history of timekeeping, there's quite a bit of human drama. Uh, so, like, oh, let's see. So between Hook and uh, Huggins, there's 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 a lot. Right, who gets the 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 preeminence for this? And of course, you couldn't just go to the patent office in the 17th century and say, "Hey, I invented this thing." So, uh, like, Hooks, um. Hook's um, spring uh, formula, they, they they published Latin anagrams and things like this to claim priority. And of course, a lot of this was was about pride and national prestige, but also about money and, you know, who gets to benefit from things. So essentially, Huggins was, was uh, Hook's big rival, and Hook came up with this first. They probably would have arrived at it independently, but of course... Everyone always wants to be the first, right? And this all plays into our narrative of the great man theory of history. Who invented the airplane first? Was it the Wright brothers? I mean, could we say it was Otto Lilienthal, right? The the Wright brothers didn't really invent the airplane. They invented um, means of um, controlling the airplane, for instance, that made flight practical. And this is what other early flight pioneers tried to... tried to try to land on but they couldn't in the sense of hooks uh hook and in, of course and uh, goes, whenever whenever yeah.
1: we talk about an invention whenever we talk about inventing an item yes so we, we need to talk about you know we, we we usually define what the item is because if we talk about helicopters uh, of course there are before before sikorsky's helicopters there are all sorts of toys with rotors on them which go as as early as the 16th century but to to say somebody invented the helicopter usually we artificially define you know what constitutes a helicopter for you to have invented it
0: yeah exactly and it's so easy because we want that you know we want to reduce things to 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 neat little narratives and it's there are tropes in history right you know what i mean by a trope it just just their stories are these common stories that we that we tell and we we want to um, reduce everything to these neat little neat little narratives, and the world doesn't really work that way. Especially the history of science, um, the same way, right? The difference between China, you know, why did the West develop technology, you know, modern technologies? We think of modern technology, and China didn't when you know they were so far ahead in many ways. And people try to answer that in a variety of ways that have neat little, um, neat little narratives, but there really is no neat little narrative around that. Really what it, what it is, is groping collective, collective labor and, you know, sometimes simultaneous things like that, like that. And it doesn't really meet with the way we think a narrative should work. And then if you want to talk about like going back to the question about what were my biggest tasks in doing this is that we like narratives. We like to think with narratives. And so what I tried to do was to take what could have very easily been a simple narrative, like a simple elevator pitch for maybe, you know, more of a trade publisher and really show in these stories, the true complexity of what went on while still making it narratively intriguing and engaging readers
1: which brings me around to something When we talked about you talk a little bit about the history of science and you know often there is a little bit of uh, well a very big a very big issue in science i think or not even so much science but you know often we have these Moments in history where something is invented in a, or designed. There's uh, some kind of idea which exists in a prototype or in a laboratory somewhere, or it is conceptually possible, but then it turns out that may, uh, there's d- difficulty with making the parts, or it requires some kind of precision in producing them, or a specific t- type of a specific type of metal for the spring, and then we cannot really make the item in numbers, even though we. We know conceptually how to uh, how to make it. Most famously, of course, there are these Greek and Egyptian steam engines, which existed. They rotated, I know, with steam, but because of the parts, so it was the quality of the parts which were available at the time, it took many centuries for them to be useful steam engines. And so... Um, can you tell us a little bit about this in the context of clocks, this relationship between, uh, of course, so the, the other end is where people start making better parts because they want to make this specific item, and then the better parts in, in themselves can be used for other stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about this relationship between, you know, the development of clocks on one hand, and on the other hand, the development of the springs and the gears and the metallurgy which was involved
0: Yeah. So what you're talking about is the problem of contingency. And it's not just the technology to make these things after you have the, you know, the idea. Um, People have been trying to create airplanes for, you know, quite some time, but they needed to have um, small, compact enough engines to make them actually fly like, you know, Langley's aerodrome, right? Had much more powerful engine than the Wright brothers did. But of course he didn't know how to control the thing. Um, but, and of course, you know, the Wright brothers would build on things like Otto Lilienthal's equations and his, his gliders. So there's this problem of contingency, right? That we build on what's gone before. Leonardo da Vinci had like some really creative ideas, but hadn't anything near the wherewithal to enact them. Um, so, so there's that aspect to it, right? That you're always standing on the shoulders of giants. And then of course we come to the, the, you know, the materials, right? That all these different things. I would really ask my students, um, I, there's this movie army of darkness in which Bruce Campbell goes back to fight zombies in the middle ages. I said, and he's got a shotgun famously in it. So could you make a shotgun in the middle ages? Cause we always see that like it's the kinetic yanking King Arthur's Court problem where he goes back in time and you know basically recreates 19th century New England in the Middle Ages, but could you do this? No, because where are you going to get pure enough iron and steel in sufficient quantities? So in the case of clock making, especially spring clock making, um, it's not for nothing. I think that the first spring clocks start turning up in centers of armor production because a lot of the qualities that make for a good spring also make, um, for good armor that it's resilient, tough, well, iron and also it's pure, you know, it's actually iron, but they hit upon making steel. Of course they didn't realize the difference between steel and iron, except by its observed qualities back then. Um, that making um, clocks, large clocks and things. Well, you can make them out of wood, of course, but it's going to wear out pretty quickly. But you're going to need large amounts of cheap iron, which is going to require blast furnaces. And that doesn't really happen until, you know, the 14th, 13th, 14th century in the, when they start coming up with big scale, um, big, big, large scale um, blast furnaces. So that helps helps with, with that. And of course, there's also the perceived need. We need to regulate urban life by a more precise measurement. Also, you know, save human labor. That's another thing, too. In the case of the ancient Greeks and, and Romans with their steam engines, well, why would you need uh, n- need a labor-saving device when you have a slave society? That doesn't, you know, they, there was no perceived need for this. Um, in the case of China, there wasn't a the perceived need for mechanical timekeeping devices. And this made um, really all the difference um, that besides having the materials to do it, you have to have the desire to do it. In the case of um, the seagoing chronometer, it required all sorts of technical advances in clockmaking to make this practical. And um, of course, Harrison didn't make all of those himself. He made a couple. You know, he made like bimetallic regulators and things like that, things that are still used today. Uh, the, the bimetallic strip in the thermostat in your house is you know is is basically you know very similar to his invention but he certainly couldn't come up with all of them and so on and so forth um even you know atomic clocks and of course today we're in really in the era of big science we're really um no breakthrough is going to happen without really a whole lot of people involved including like grant funding agencies and things like that there's relatively little si- well there's a lot of science that can be done by people in their garage But a lot of science these days is is done by really teams of people. We're just kind of very attached to that whole, you know, lone heroic idea. Hope that answers the question.
1: Well, from this, I would. Yeah, it certainly does. And from this, I'd like to move on to, you know, we started with a traditional question, and we will conclude with one which is a traditional question on this show. As I mentioned, this is a show about books by writers and readers, and for writers and readers. And... You're probably probably reading something right now, so, so some kind of some kind of books, no doubt. Uh, can you tell us about it? Can you tell us about the books you're reading? Something you could maybe suggest or read to our to our, to our, our readers or
0: listeners. Okay, so what am I reading right now? Well, I have to confess, <laughs> I'm not really reading a lot besides mm. sort of long form essays and The Atlantic and the New York Times and things like that. Um. I'm very interested in in pedagogy, so I'm reading a, a bunch of things on anti-racist pedagogy, sayobinuay, things like that. Um, I'm also interested, very interested in the Zissel thesis, which is a very fascinating idea written by this Jewish Austrian academic refugee, and I say academic in a loose sense since he had his degree, but he didn't really work properly in academia properly, and I kind of. Empathize with the guy, and he wound up becoming a refugee from Austria to the United States before World War II. And he actually wound up killing himself because he was incredibly isolated. He was working part time at Mills College in California, and he was just hopeless and despairing. And he wound up committing suicide. And I really, um, I really feel feel for the fellow, but he came up with this fascinating, and influential. Thesis that the rise of technology was really dependent on relationships between scientific thinkers and artisans with practical knowledge. And his name was Edgar Zissel. And a lot of what he wrote was sort of collected after his death. But Pamela O'Long wrote a great book called uh, Artisan Practitioners and the Rise of the New Sciences. And she my interest in this is that i really want to write a monograph on fencing books fencing treatises as representative of sort of the the gestalt of their time and the way they express these things is sort of a, a sciencey way of representing reality and the relationship between these books and the history of science so i very much want to write this book and so i'm doing a lot of research for for that unfortunately as i said my i i moved recently all my books are in storage and I haven't really been, been purchasing books. I just have all these sort of unread books lying around that I really need to pick up. But the other thing I'm really trying to do whenever I have a free moment is to write. I'm trying to finish my fantasy novel. And I think that most of my what I'd call my reading time is going towards that. And that's sort of obsessing me. So I'm also reading a lot of like literary criticism and... Things like things like that to try to try to um, sort of uh, be in dialogue with other sources with this. So I'm doing a lot of uh, I would say meta reading. I feel really very guilty that I haven't actually picked up a physical book in a while, which is something I very much like doing. But I think the digital age and also my working online has have really shortened my attention span, but even more so when I'm not working, right, I'm not sitting in front of the computer, I really want to be moving my body and spending, I think, a lot of my free time simply just moving my body. And that in itself is sort of a legible thing in that I'm treating my own body and, you know, I'm getting older. And I'm treating my body and its declining abilities as a sort of text and I've become kind of, Obsessed with the coding, the text of okay. Well, what can I do? How can I make my body work better? How can I, you know, salvage whatever function I have left? I'm uh, suffering from a, a knee injury right now. I'm trying to work around it, and that's been preoccupying a lot of my time and attention. So that, and also, you know, just riding my horse. That's taking a lot of time too. Reading a lot about horse training. And um,
1: is it amazing?
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Right, just reading a lot about horse tra- training and becoming a better rider and how to horses work and just kind of being in the moment. So I, I really think of late, I've been using different parts of my brain besides the reading part, the writing parts that in a sense, it's almost like had a surfeit of being an academic and reading in my life. And I think my brain and partially I think as a result of the pandemic and just being online all the time. Um, It's nice to just be able to, you know, talk to you with my eyes closed on using, using Zencaster. Right. But a lot of it is just, just with, just using just just using my physical self, as opposed to my intellectual self, it's almost like a very badly needed corrective, and sort of learning from just the the, the embodied experience of that as a sort of its own text. Um, then you know I've been doing conference papers and stuff like that, doing uh and just reading and things like that. I think the last book, actual proper book I read was probably uh, Pedagogies of the Oppressed by Paul Frere. So. The great Brazilian social justice educator. Not that I agreed with 100, percent but he's got some good insight.
1: And you know, f- from this, I'd like to you know bring our show somewhat towards a conclusion. And when you when you are done, uh, was said uh, when you when you write that book about. Uh, about the, uh, about the, In fact, when you're done writing any book, you should come back to us. If you write the book about uh, swordsmanship, about the fencing manuals, you're welcome. Uh, I will, I will happily interview. You. If not, if you, if you finish the yes. fantasy novel first, then there's a slightly different channel we have on the New Books Network that deals with that. But in any event, we are always glad to have you with us, uh, Ken
0: sure of course yeah and of course you have my game of thrones book um my game of thrones and the medieval art of war book which i think they sent you
1: for our listeners we will also have ken here again quite soon with his other book which is about medieval warfare and its portrayal in game of thrones so stay tuned thank you thank you ken